Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is with me too. Lucy, hello. Hello. I'm not actually with you, in, but, but I'm with you in spirit. You are in spirit and in voice. Yeah, um, on the airwaves. On the airwaves. And, and, and how are things in your uh, dramatically reduced corner of the world? <laughs> I'm afraid they're about the same as they were last week. The newest thing I've done is plant a Nepalese clematis. I just did it this afternoon. Oh, great. I was going to ask you about your allotment, although you're talking about your garden. I am, yeah. I was wondering if anything's going on in the allotment, because mm. if it's anything like my garden, it's just various shades of textures of mud. Yeah, yeah. No, that's what's going on. It's, it's actually, it's insane of me to plant a clematis in January, but I just was itching to do something like that. No, no, everything is, is various shades of brown and mud. Uh, and that's January. <laughs> I found myself <laughs> on... Un, like unusually fascinated by the little little kind of squelchy little spirals of mud that that worms put out oh yeah the worm casts yeah yeah that's what my garden is it's the worm that's equivalent of our podcast it's not it's just the same word <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well um shall we shall we leave this place shall we travel to imperial china and greece and miami then? let's do that instead good good because coming up on the show this week we will discuss the rather delicate matter of porcelain by an exhausted and wonderful account of its rise and fall by Norma Clark. We'll move from exclusivity and luxury in imperial China to cheap ubiquity in modern day Europe. We'll also have a new poem, Sure, I Was Loved, by one of our finest poets, Anne Carson. But first, Lucy, let's go back to February 25th, 1964 in Miami. Yes. How about a night in 1964 when four giants in their fields get together to try and work out where a whole society is going? The giants are Cassius Clay, Malcolm X, Jim Brown and Sam Cooke, and they get together in the film One Night in Miami. Clifford Thompson, the author of What It Is, Race, Family and One Thinking Black Man's Blues, wrote about this for us and we're delighted that he can talk to us today on the line from New York. Clifford, many thanks for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, first of all, can you tell us about the, the setup of the film and, and uh, where it came from, please? Sure, sure. Uh, Kemp Powers wrote a stage play uh, with the same title, One Night in Miami. And uh, that play focused on uh, what would otherwise be a, a kind of a footnote in history. So Cassius Clay, as he was then known, defeated Sonny Liston for the heavyweight boxing championship in uh, 1964. The night he did so, he was in a hotel room. He was in Malcolm X's hotel room, along with um, Jim Brown and Sam Cooke. According to Ali's biographer, uh, Jonathan Icke, there were other people there too, including uh, Ali's brother. But uh, uh, Kemp decided to kind of just focus on these four iconic individuals. So the four individuals actually were in a hotel room together so that part is uh, is actually true and what uh, powers did from there was to imagine uh, what their conversation might have been like and to to draw on their actual personalities and concerns and pursuits in in fashioning a drama that is uh, in part a clash of, of of ideas about the best way to 
uh, proceed as Black Americans in the 1960s. Yes, because you talk about that in your piece, don't you, that that time, the early 60s, you, you say it's, it was kind of, um, there was a kind of doubleness about it that was full of hope, but there was also a lot of fear. There was hope that people were beginning to talk about, about how things should change, but also fear about the resistance that they were going to get. And these four, because they were very well known and had relatively, um, as black celebrities had quite a lot of power, Mm-hmm. There's a real question about what they could or should do with it. Right, right. Yes. Um, the mid-1960s was a, a tricky time because, as you say, um, things were beginning to change. You know, the the, the civil rights movement had uh, taken on steam by that time. And um, the uh, Civil Rights Act was signed that year. The Voting Rights Act would be signed the following year. And so change was afoot, but so was resistance to change. So it was a, a hopeful and dangerous time. And the blacks who were celebrities at that point, their actions just counted for so much and, and their words. And so they, they were being scrutinized uh, by the public, sometimes by the FBI. And so what they said and did carried a lot of weight. And uh, it, it was a time when it was possible to do more than had been done in the past, but doing so could carry great risks. So that was the point in time that uh, the play focuses on and the movie. And one of the ways in which that's really emphasized that kind of the, the, the pressure behind every choice about how, how to be, how to behave is, is kind of brought to a focus in the case of, of Cassius Clay, isn't it? As you mentioned, he is on the brink of joining the nation of Islam. And so his relationship with Malcolm X at that particular moment it's one of the most intense in, in, in the that's right, film. That's right, that's um, you know, right. It's important to remember that, that uh, Cassius Clay, as he was unknown, was 22 years old. He was this very young man, but he represented so much in terms of the kind of progression of thought in the 1960s. You know, he was, here was a young black man who just would not defer to anyone, who, who would not play any sort of game that white people in power wanted him to play. He was going to do things on his own terms. Um, and that is, you know, part of what had made him such an exciting figure in, in addition to his like peerless boxing skills. And so, you know, his friendship with Malcolm X uh, was very important in his life. And when he won the title, his name was Cassius Clay and he soon changed it to Muhammad Ali and declared his allegiance to, uh, to the nation of Islam. So it, it was a, it was a pivotal time for, uh, and, and Ali's career, certainly. Um, and from your knowledge of the men involved, which I know is considerable, how how accurate do you think these portraits are? I don't mean the performances; we'll get onto them, but the but the portraits as they're as they're written. Right. I th- it seems to me that the the portraits as they're written are are very accurate in terms of the the sensibilities of the characters involved. Right. I guess I'll start with Ali, who was a, a fascinating, as I say in the review, a, a fascinating mix of things. I mean, he here was this this young man who uh, believed fervently and just in in standing up for himself and 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 just being treated like a man. And that part of him was was very fierce. Of course, he was very fierce in the ring. Um, he was also such a charismatic figure because he just he liked to to clown so much and you know he he would make up these rhymes and and he would uh, make predictions about about the fights he was going to have a lot of people did not like the fact that he that he bragged so much and yet it always seemed to me even when i was a, a child watching him uh, on on tv it always seemed to me that that the bragging i mean while he certainly had a a, a healthy ego and a healthy uh, uh, understanding of of, uh, of his own talent, I could not take a lot of it seriously. It just seemed to me like he was having fun, you know, himself, and and he wanted other people to kind of enjoy his presence and. And so it really was a performance, you know. Yeah, they always seemed like part of the performance, didn't it? Right. And I know I'm just I'm going to break my own rule now because I am going to talk about the performance. <laughs> it's Eli Gorey, is that right? Who's yes. playing Muhammad? Mm-hmm. He's so he's just so charming because he says these things, and I was thinking, well, if a lot of other you know if other people said them, you'd be like, really? Right. And he's <laughs> so charming exactly. that you find yourself just grinning and kind of going along with it, and he gets away with it. So when he tells people how pretty he is and jumps up and down, and and everyone just laps it up because. He's so infectious. Yes, 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 and 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 you get the feeling, or at least I did, that that he didn't really take it all that seriously, you know. Um, mm. So it was it was it was an interesting mix of things. I mean, th- there's a wonderful scene in the film uh, when 
he's with uh, Malcolm X and Sam Cooke and Jim Brown, and he's kind of just uh, jumping around and, and, and being very boyish and, and having fun. And then he gets a serious look on his face and he's looking in the mirror and, and the other three come over and they say, uh, you know, Cassius, what's wrong? And he says something like, I just can't believe I'm so pretty. It's <laughs> brilliant. It's <laughs> brilliant. And they, they're completely taking yeah. him in. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly, exactly. So, so yeah, so I, so I think... Um, you know, that, that is very much true to Ali. And, and you know, what's also true is that he was a young man who was very much on the fence in terms of what he wanted to do, in, uh, you know, when it came to uh, being religious. I mean, he, he was, on the one hand, he believed in the teachings of the Nation of Islam. Um, and on the other, he was a 22-year-old guy who, you know, liked women, liked, liked drinking, like you know, just liked things that young men like. And so... Um, there was a certain reluctance there, so that I, that I find interesting, and that I think is is very true to um, to the real life Ali. Well, there's some secret drinking that goes on in the film. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> it's, it's funny because yes. they're very sheepish in front of Malcolm X. Yes, it's like yes. he's he's the dad, and they're they're like, "Have you smelled his breath?" And they're, yes, you that's know. that's a really good way to put it. Actually, he 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 is like the dad. Um, and speaking of you know just the accuracy of of the portrayals, um, I as far as I can tell. Uh, the one involving Malcolm X is is uh, is on target too. Um, you know, I was I was not quite a year old when Malcolm X was assassinated, and so I you know I I never met the man, but I, I have talked to people who did know him, and one of them especially talked about how almost bashful Malcolm X was in person if you're just talking to him one on one, which of course is in contrast to how we think of M Malcolm X just being so so fiery. And the performance by Kingsley Benadir as Malcolm X in the film, I, I think captures a lot of that. He's he's very um courtly is is the is I think the the word the adjective I use in, in the review. Um, he, mm. he's just so uh, measured in the way he speaks. Um, and I think that comes from just a kind of a, a sense of calm and a sense of purpose that that kind of anchors him in the in the in the midst of everything that is happening at the time, including you know threats against his life. You strongly get the sense that he's very complex. There's a lot of pressures pulling him different ways, and he's very thoughtful. So in some ways, he's kind of tortured by it because he's 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 thinking these things very deeply, and he's being pulled in all sorts of directions by them. Yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, that was the point at which he was about to uh, break with Elijah Muhammad, who's the, the, the head of the Nation of Islam, um, which was a very, which left him in a very lonely position. So you know, he, he was uh, being monitored by the FBI, there, there were grumblings from within the Nation of Islam, because uh, we, you know, which I think were were largely fueled by by jealousy because he was by far the most visible figure in the nation, uh, more so even than Elijah Muhammad himself. You know, so he had a lot of he had a lot of pressures on him, and I think uh, Ben Adir's uh, uh, kind of understated performance I think captures a lot of how he operated in in the face of all that. In particular, there's a, a scene uh, you mentioned his his kind of bashfulness, and there's there's a scene where he's alone. Uh, just briefly, uh, Sam Cooke and, and Mohammed and Cassius Clay uh, disappear off to the liquor store. And he's mm -hmm. left, um, Jim Brown is left alone, played by Aldous Hodge, left alone with um, with Malcolm X. And, mm -hmm. and and so much in that scene comes across in terms of of insecurity and and, and that pressure. It's like Jim Brown, you say, you, you put it so beautifully, he, um, Aldous Hodge, who plays Jim, Jim Brown, acts with his eyes. And this is a moment where he sees more than any of the other men he sees malcolm x he sees him yes yeah i think that's exactly right i um i i think of all the of all the characters i think it's jim brown who is able to step back and put things in in perspective you know in terms of uh, the 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 other characters arguments and um and that that's a very powerful scene that you refer to you know at, at one point uh malcolm uh, gets emotional and jim brown leans forward and kind of puts his hand on his on his arm and says you know talk to me tell me tell me what's going on um, it's, it's it's a very moving scene you also say in your piece that there are two layers of emotion um when you're watching it and the first is, is from witnessing the situation and they're back and forth and their struggle and the second sort of comes from knowing what happened um to all these very talented men afterwards yeah that that's right i you know it's it's wrenching sometimes because um the four characters at bottom all want the same thing, you know. They they all want their own freedom, and they want freedom for their people. And 
those desires lead them uh, to different approaches and 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 that's the source of their of their clashes and so it's it's kind of almost wrenching to see characters who are so passionate and in so many ways want the same thing to to disagree sharply on how to how to get that thing it's funny watching the end of uh, of one night in miami i was i was reminded of the end of uh, a play called uh, Abe Lincoln in Illinois by Robert E. Sherwood, which ends with Lincoln having won the uh, 1860 presidential election and, and heading off to Washington. And, you know, that people are in tears at the end of that story because they know what's coming. You know, they, uh, they, they know it's uh, what's coming is civil war and, and Lincoln's assassination. And it's, it's so emotional for that reason. And the same thing is true here. So the action is set on February 25th, 1964. Late that same year, Sam Cooke was shot to death uh, in an incident in a, in a motel by the, the manager of the hotel in an incident that, that involved um, a woman who turned out to be a prostitute. And the, the case is murky to this day. Um, almost exactly a year after uh, the events in One Night in Miami, Malcolm X, of course, would be, would be assassinated. Muhammad Ali lived till until 2016, but for decades before that, the punishment that he absorbed in the ring, it took its toll on him. And, um, you know, he, he had Parkinson's disease and this young man who had just been this irrepressible figure, just always clowning and joking and talking fast, just be later became this, this kind of slow moving uh, person who it, it was hard to associate with his, his younger self. Only Jim Brown remains alive. Uh, you know, he had a a great football career, of course. He was in a lot of action films, including probably most famously The Dirty Dozen. And what a lot of people don't know about Jim Brown, actually, is that he did a lot of work with uh, gangs, uh, people who are caught up in gangs, trying to get them out of the life and, and, and kind of improve their circumstances. So, But, you know, the other three, it's very sad to see them so full of life in the film, knowing what's, what's coming down the road. I grew up listening to my older brother's... Uh, uh, Sam Cooke albums, and even then, he just seemed so so sunny, and and uh, his voice was so was so happy, even when he was singing about ostensibly sad things, and uh, and he was so handsome, you know, and 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 so he had that persona of just just being this this really cheerful presence with this with these movie star good looks, and what that belied was a real shrewdness when it came to uh, business matters. You know, he was not content to to just uh, get paid for singing on a record. He wanted to own the rights to things so that, um, you know, there's a, there's a great scene in One Night in Miami when um, he, he's talking about... Um, it's uh, Bobby Womack. Bobby Womack, written, yes, yes. Uh, all, is it All Over Now? Yes, right? yes. Mm -hmm. this, I think that's yeah. right, yeah. Um, and, you know, he recorded that song and then the, the Rolling Stones did it and eclipsed his version. But because he had written the song and he had the rights to the song, every time the, the Stones performed it, he got a chunk of change. And uh, Sam Cooke is, is trying to impress upon uh, Malcolm X and the others that look this is you know this is business you know if we want to if we want to get anywhere we, this is what we have to do yeah and also this is as Jim Brown later says that the economic power you could say that that, that that's power right and luckily he um in the film we do have quite a bit of him singing mm. quite a lot mm -hmm. of pressure to play Sam Cooke but he just sings really beautifully yes yes so yes, there's indeed. no problem yeah. you know there's no anxiety there is there <laughs> and I was thinking about it because because um I mean, this is already in the film. Malcolm X is saying, why aren't you, you know, why are you writing? He's essentially saying, why are you writing kind of silly love songs? Right. You send me sentimental reasons, that kind of thing. Yeah. But there's an earlier, uh, he's referring to a concert that he sees him do earlier where he he had already written Chain Gang. He he wasn't, mm. um, he wasn't completely kind of cut off, was he, from what was going on? No, that's true. That's true. I mean, you know, and I, and I think, uh, I can't remember a time when I didn't know that song, but I did not know when I was listening to it as a kid that, that, you know, I did not think about the circumstances that, that inspired it. Um, and of course, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these prisoners in the South were, were black. And, you know, there, there was, um, there was a thing in the South called convict leasing where um, prisons and would lease convicts to, to companies to do work for, for no pay, obviously. And just backbreaking work that sometimes uh, that sometimes sent them to an early grave, you know. So this was going on, and and Sam Cooke's song I think alludes to that, and but but not in a not in an obvious way at all. And it's a very 
male story, isn't it? That it is directed by a woman, but it's it's really this is really all about the blokes. This one, there's no. Yeah. I mean, you see a little, you know, uh, uh, you see a, a little <laughs> bit of the wives, but um, this is um, Regina King's debut. We know that she's a wonderful actor, um, but this is her first film. So, does it show that this is her first film? Can you see uh, strengths or weaknesses in her as a director? For me, it's 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 hard to it's hard to come up with too many. I mean, I I, I think it's a a, a really uh, fine debut. You know, I I think there were some really interesting choices that are, that are very uh, very successful. You know, one I mentioned in the review is the fact that um, the interior scenes. You know, so much of it takes place in um, in a hotel room, and the way it's filmed and the way the the set is designed and everything, it, it just kind of reinforces that that intimacy. There there are no garish colors in in the room. There there's there are like browns and dark reds and and uh, reinforces the sort of intimacy among among the four men. You you feel like you're kind of sitting in on a on a family gathering in a way. You know. And in fact, one of the things that sort of when I was watching it, that this sort of feels like a both strength and and weakness is that it feels it feels like a play, it feels like you're watching a play. But the, the strength of that is that when the characters leave the room, you, you want them to hurry back. It sort of creates a sense of, 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 of danger of kind of outside and inside, mm-hmm, uh, which mm-hmm. intensifies everything. Yes, yes. And, and, and I, I think that that's a way of getting to um, an, another strength that I, that I see, um, which is that the, the film takes its time in the scenes and, and allows the scenes to build, you know, and, and that building is based on, on character and, and not slam bang action. You know, it, it is a story about men and in that sense, it's a very, very male story, but I would not, I would not say it's like testosterone driven. The, the direction of it is, is not because, um, because there is this patience that's at play. Um, and it's nowhere more apparent to me than in this pre-title sequence with uh, Jim Brown, he drives through, uh, you know, down some back roads in Georgia, and it's a it's a gorgeously lit scene. And then he comes to the house of a man played by uh, Bo Bridges, who's an older uh, white acquaintance of his. And their interaction is so friendly that y- you know you're sort of kind of sitting there waiting for something bad to happen. And but but it it just goes on that that friendliness continues, and and you almost get lulled into it. And then this kapow, you know, this thing happens, which I I, I won't give away, but but it's it's so it's so effective, and I think part of its effectiveness is that the the scene is just so patiently allowed to build. Yes, it it, it is. It really it is really is like being smacked in the face, isn't it? It's like yeah. wow, and also as you say that you think, oh gosh, you know, maybe this is okay, <laughs> and then it's really not. Right, and right, 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 right. Yeah, you, that that that's a very that's a very very strong scene, which sort of sets up the whole thing, doesn't it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. And finally, I'm sure we could all just chat about this for hours and hours, but I think, <laughs> alas, we will have to stop. Um, do you feel, I felt as I was watching it, that it's, it, it would suffer this one from not being seen in cinemas, especially at this present mm. moment. There were a couple of points when I kind of drew in my breath and there were a couple mm. of lines that were really resonant and they were resonant mm. in 1964 and they felt resonant now. And you think, well, that shouldn't be. And I wondered if you if, if you felt that the, it, that it was a lack not having that collective experience. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a combination of things, I think. Um, on the one hand, you know, the, the, the fighting scenes in the beginning um, with uh, Cassius Clay walloping uh, Sonny Liston and, and Henry Cooper, you know, those are exciting and those would be great to see on a, on a big screen. Um, and yet... There is something about the scenes in the in the hotel room that I I think actually works on a small screen because there is that that sort of intimacy. You know, if you're watching this in the theater with um, I don't know 300 other people, you know, I, I'm not sure it even works as well. If you're if you're sitting at home on your couch and and you know you've got dim lighting and and you're just watching these other guys in a room, it, it, it's almost like seeing it on TV in the comfort of your own home, kind of enhances the the intimacy of those scenes so yes I hadn't thought about that I suppose I'm sure you're right and that's why it feels so intense it was it was also it was just the the feeling of um some of it seemed to articulate almost what was happening now oh yeah and so that feeling that that sometimes you get in a cinema everyone goes whoa or you know everyone feels something at the same time Mm -hmm. um, because it seemed to be speaking about a collective experience that's certainly true that's certainly true I mean I you know the uh, the characters are portraying a, a, a time when, when we're at a crossroads, you know, what, what do we do now? 
you know, what, what is the best way forward? And certainly that is where we are in the present day, you know, especially in, in, in America. Um, you know, so then it's a matter of what's the best way forward? Where, where do we go from here? Um, so I, th- I think it captures that very well. Well, um, I guess one one small way for us to go from here is to urge everyone to watch One Night in Miami. And I have to say to listen to Sam Cooke. I've been making my whole family listen to Sam <laughs> Cooke all week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is no hardship, is no, it? No, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. No. <laughs> um, Clifford Thompson, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. Still to come on the show, new work by the poet and classic scholar Anne Carson and Norma Clark on the rise and fall of porcelain from elite obsession to cheap ornaments hidden away in the attic. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. A weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, rapper and songwriter Professor Green talks candidly about being raised on an East London council estate by his grandmother, his drug dealing, and how his father's suicide made him reevaluate his own life. The one thing that I have in common with a lot of my, my friends who come from similarly disadvantaged backgrounds is that we all carry on. And at the end of the day, no matter what happens, if you're still alive, I don't think there's anything really left to do but carry on. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Professor Green, in his own words, now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Theolin Arduzzi and before we turn to the history of porcelain, we are aiming for something as close as possible here to the bookshop reading so many of us are missing at the moment. I'm thrilled to say we're joined on the line by the poet Anne Carson, who has agreed to give us the great pleasure of hearing her read a new work. Sure, I was loved. Anne Carson, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, i I'm really glad to hear you say the title because I'm not sure how to say that title. It could be a lot of different intonations. So thank you for that um, guide. Well, I did. I did puzzle over it a fair, a fair bit myself as well. It's a very, it's a very full comma. Yeah, very full comma and a lot of uh, possible emotion, sort of trickling out of it. But anyway, that's that was good. 
I like it the way you did it. <laughs> Good, I'm I'm relieved. Um, well, before you read the poem, um, is there anything on top of what you've just said, in fact, that you would uh, that you'd like to offer by way of introduction, or would you prefer to just plunge straight in? Well, I I think since it's dedicated to uh, another artist, I should say something about why. It's for Dimitris Papayuanu, whom some of the listeners may know. He's a, an a Athenian choreographer. He has a dance company. And um, he once came to the town where I lived and gave a performance with his company. And it was a most disturbing and disturbed event, which I tried to recapture in the poem, but an image I'll give you that maybe conveys something of the nature of the performance. It's a company of dancers, about six or seven, two hour long performance, but they dance on a floor, which is unstable. That is, they, they bring their own floor with them and rebuild the dance floor wherever they go. And it's built out of planks that are at angles to one another. So they're always dancing either uphill or downhill or on surfaces that don't quite meet. And he said, when he was describing this, he said, we always bring our own legs with us, which of course I immediately wrote down. Um, it's a fantastic sentence, but I didn't have any idea what it meant emotionally. I mean, I had experienced what it meant, but I didn't understand it. So. That's what the poem's trying to do, to be sort of as disturbed as that performance was, since we all are pretty disturbed nowadays. Well, the floor, as dynamic and composed and recomposed as it is, is, is all yours. <laughs> Thank you. Sure, I was loved. I tame you. No, you don't. You were nude. You were intangible. You were unconvincing. You were vague. You claimed you were born from angels. You stank of the horrors of war. You blazed with ruthless pride. Your full loose mouth blazed. You had a fruit bloom. You bloomed like a cannibal, ready to devour or be devoured or both. You had your portrait painted as a butcher's block, yet you were not a still life. You were meat, but recently living. You had come with your own legs. I replaced your legs. I replaced your crotch, crotches, all of them. You were ghosting around as if a mystery of hymen. I undressed you. That is the only difference. Beyond that, there was little development between us. I used crutches, stilts, evisceration, plaster casts. I rooted your shoes. I tilted the stage, I knocked it apart, I combined you with other genders. I rolled up my sleeves. I showed you no tenderness, we might as well have been sexual, or medical, or archaeologists. I required you to clean up whatever mess we made. I used the mess again next day. I slowed your steps, inhibited your breathing, assaulted you with film score music. I littered the stage with open graves and you fell into them. Hilarious. I laughed at you. I made you walk on your hands without oxygen or effective friends. I made you build the floor you walked on. I blew your clothes off. I mangled your Orpheus scene. I threw someone else's thighs at you. I doused you with the waters of Lethe. I flattened you into a lozenge and stuffed you in my pocket. I shot all the arrows of King Darius's Persian army at you, then made you pick them all up. I tossed your skeleton off its slab, it smashed. I played with your skull. I got you chasing a nostalgic scrap of paper then turned out the lights and told the audience to go home. Beyond that, nothing was resolved between us. The legs were of various heights. You invited me into your golden age. I made you a stranger, a loser, an arabiste, an undocumented alien, an unclaimed hostage, a bad birthday gift. I had you eaten into by the human. I broke your energy. I invented your gravity. I pulled you out through your own peephole. No, you didn't. I tame you. No, you don't. 
and Carson, that was beautifully disturbing and disorientating. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. A new poem by Anne Carson is a hard act to follow, but Norma Clark has written a wonderful account of the rise and fall of porcelain, which takes us from exclusivity and luxury in Imperial China to cheap ubiquity in modern day Europe. Norma has reviewed two books on the matter, The City of Blue and White, Chinese Porcelain and the Early Modern World by Anne Geritsen and Porcelain, A History from the Heart of Europe by Suzanne L. Marchand. And she joins us on the line to tell us more. Norma, hello. Hi, Thea. Good to be here. And so the story of porcelain starts sometime between 618 and 907 AD, those being the, the dates of the Tang dynasty in a very specific pocket of China. Could you set the scene for us, please? Yes, it's um, very interesting. And of course, um, you say the story begins as early as that, and it remains um, a Chinese story right up until the beginning of the 18th century, because uh nobody else managed to find out how the Chinese did this. Um, and the city that Anne Geritsen writes about is in southern China. It's a landlocked province. It's known as the, the capital, China's porcelain capital, uh, because it was the place where the white wares, the, the more delicate white wares, were first made. What was it about this very, this, this quite specific corner um, of the country that lent itself to this, this type of industry? It's, it's, it's geology, presumably. There, there were things, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention those in a moment, but it does remain a bit of a mystery as well. Um, I suppose the essence of it is the, um, the high quality of the clay that was available, this white clay there were mountains with thick vegetation, so there was plenty of wood for the firing of the kilns, and it was along a riverbed, uh, and so there was water. Um, and also being along the Yangtze River meant that trade was much more possible, and that's how it became the place that produced ceramics for the imperial court which was both a blessing and in some ways a curse. This is uh, Jindagen, the city of blue and white, uh, as Anne Gerritsen calls it in, in her book. Um, at what point did, did porcelain become so strongly uh, identified with the blue and white colouring then? And it, is, it, is it cobalt that is used? Yes, it's cobalt that's used. And the blue and white is really interesting in terms of how it's dated as well. There's a wonderful story about that a ship carrying masses of stuff went down in the, in the China seas in the early 14th century. And it's from what was found on that ship that people have dated the blue and white porcelain because the ship went down and there was no blue and white on it. And then in 1351, there are two temple vases called the David vases, which were made in Jingdezhen, uh, and they are blue and white. Can I ask a, a, a very basic, simple question about the blue and white? Is it because the cobalt, did the, does the cobalt, is that the, the, the thing that, that fires the best and keeps the best colour? Is that why it's blue and white and not red and white or purple or green or any of these things? Gosh, um, I don't know. Um, it's certainly the cobalt, which is the blue, and cobalt is quite expensive, um, but I don't know why other um, minerals or whatever aren't used in the same way. I'm, I'm not a potter. There's still time. Lockdown hasn't trans transformed you into a potter then. <laughs> I don't like it, actually. I remember doing it a bit at school. Um, and the feel of the um, of the clay going through your hands. I mean, I think either you like it or you don't. I I, I wasn't 
so keen on it myself. Mm. I wonder whether the blue, even because you say it was very expensive, sometimes that's the very reason, isn't it? That 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 that, that, that it's very popular and yeah, sought after. I, I can afford blue on white. Um, yeah. you know, look at my wonderful stuff. Yeah, it's so interesting that this it, it it's made in this one one province of China, but it has this global purchase as an exotic object. Um, so what happens is that all the big rulers, they all want their collections of porcelain and it becomes a real status object. That, that's what makes it so remarkable that until, as you said, until the 18th century, that the Chinese were able to guard the secret of porcelain manufacture. I mean, you'd think that, you know, by close observation, whether European travellers or spies, as happened in the tea industry, the secret would have sure. would have got out. I know, I know. It's fascinating, isn't it? But, you know, but it didn't, it clearly didn't, um, until this, this, this man, this alchemist in, in Saxony managed, by, by, by dint of experimentation, I mean, he didn't, you know, have a piece of paper with the, with the numbers on it that he could follow it was simply trial and error the whole time and the thing about it is that there's a very high failure rate so when you're uh, uh, because when you're making this kind of um, ceramic ware you have to fire it to such intensity so of course things are often breaking you have to get the um, you have to get the, uh, the quantity of clay the kaolin clay um, and whatever else you're using and the water and the heat all has to be at a certain um has to agree in a certain way to produce the um the pot that doesn't break and uh, people couldn't do it they just couldn't manage it. until as you say 1708 um an, an alcoholic alchemist johan botka yes. <laughs> fantastic That's description right. i'm sure he'd be thrilled <laughs> Europe then this is this is the story this is where the story is picked up by Susan Marchand and Herbert Paulson that's right uh, history yeah. history from the heart of Europe so again this isn't really a history of porcelain is it she's sort of coming at things from a different angle with a different aim it's essentially a history of the two big companies in Germany she's a she's a German historian um, so she's she situates um things that she has to say about the Meissen company and the KPM, which is um, uh, the porcelain manufacturer, the kind of royal porcelain manufacturer in, in, um, in Berlin. She situates the story of those two businesses within a, a larger story of, um, of ceramics and porcelain, but really she's talking about Germany. When you, when you mention in your piece um, its uses in the First and Second World War in, in, in grenades and uh, and all sorts of surprising ways, it also made me wonder about, um, I have a memory of porcelain was used to make prosthetic body parts, wasn't it? And, and, and especially oh, for God, those with yeah. facial mutilation. And then the way that ties into, um, you discussed briefly, the, uh, the making of dolls. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. Um, yes, I mean, that was the, the biggest use of porcelain come you know, the, the mid-19th century. Uh, biggest use of you know, mass production of porcelain items was for doll heads. Um, and then these, you know, what they called hygienic wares, it's bathrooms, it's sinks and lavatory bowls and baths and all of that. Um, which, which you know, we're all, we're also told about, although we don't get very much uh, context for that. I would have liked uh, to have been told a bit more about some of the changes in people's lives. So far, we've we've mostly discussed porcelain as you know the triumph, really, or the, the skill and the discovery of porcelain as something that everyone desires, but you know not everyone can have, and then they can they, they and then eventually they can as mass production. Uh, comes on stream and, and and everything but I suppose what we haven't really spoken about is how it impacts people's lives not so much the consumer as as the worker and it sounds like both of these books are particularly focused on on that aspect of, of the industry. Yes they're very good both of these books are very good um, in uh, the, the, the city of blue and white the, the study of Chinese porcelain in the early modern world um, and Gerritsen is very keen to try and get inside the workshops. This city is completely given over to the production of, uh, of these ceramics. Just to give you an idea of the, the, the quantity that was being produced. Uh, in 1433, for example, Jing Dezen was required to send 443,000 500 pieces of ceramics to the imperial court. And what that meant was that it's, it's a, you know, a vast population of people because the manpower required to produce this volume um, of ceramics was, was enormous. Um, each, I mean, if you think about the firing of a kiln, so the, the, the wood that is um, that is being um, brought in is measured by the shoulder load and the shoulder load is about 50 kilos. So 50 kilos of wood. Each kiln might need 180 of those shoulder loads called a gang um, to, get the very, to get to the very high heat that you needed to fire the clay. Um, so that's being carried. So you, you can imagine um, this whole town full of all these, you know, mostly men running around with their you know, wood on their shoulders. Um, it's just one part of the operation. And then the other part of the operation is uh, workshops that are making the tools um, that they need to, um, to produce this. And as, as she says, the majority of the work tasks involved there's digging, beating, sieving, carrying, pouring and stirring and then there's more carrying. So all of those tasks are very labour intense. All the while inhaling dangerous while inhaling. chemicals and dusts. Uh, I, I just wanted to go back to um, talk about the other uses um, that you'd said, as, as well as technical porcelain. And, and, uh, and I had remembered that it was used for propaganda because there was Soviet porcelain, wasn't there? I'm pretty sure there was French Revolution porcelain. It's sort of used as propaganda. You get a plate with, you know, some citoyen on it, which does it was because now that's not the way we think of it at all, is it? No. And that also that starts earlier. I mean, um, in the early 18th century, um, in, in England, you could buy figurines of famous actors and actresses to put on your mantelpiece. Um, so that, that goes through. And then, yes, lots of um, uh, plates and jugs with figures on them or, or slogans or whatever. So the anti-Semitic porcelain fits right into kind of popular tradition um, of the use of porcelain. So that's an uncomfortable part of their history for sure. Um, on, a, on a final note then, I mean, you say um, that Marchand's book brings us right up to, to 2019, I think it is. So pretty pretty much the present moment. Um, what What is the status of porcelain now? Has there been a sort of, presumably there's been a, 
a, a sort of backlash against the cheap mass-produced goods of small scale at least return to some kind of craft making of I it. Guess. I mean, um, these businesses, are they, they look doomed, actually. I mean, that's serious. It's mm. a very, very gloomy uh, final comment uh, because people don't want this kind of thing in the same way that they used to. I mean, in the 19th century, you would buy a bust of Cicero or something and have it on your shelf um, amongst your books. And it was a part of uh, looking distinguished, or you would have a 12 piece set of China that was just for display or brought out for very special occasions. Nobody does that kind of thing. Uh, I've um, got several busts of Cicero. Have you? <laughs> no, no, but now we, now you say that, I would like one. Yeah, yeah, no, no, actually, <laughs> indeed, when I was reading this, I was thinking, hmm, yeah, shame, shame that that stopped being popular. Or maybe we'll lead the revolution yeah. with this, <laughs> with with this podcast. I mean, I certainly remember my, yeah, my English grandmother had a collection of, of figurines. Like, I suppose they were yeah. sort of like expensive toys, really, for, for a generation that was probably forced to grow up much, much quicker than, than they wanted to because of, you know, war yes, and, but, and obligations and, and but stuff. Did you, but did you mock it? I mean, did you ever think that you would have anything like that when you grew up? Because I, I think did, I know. think I probably did when I was when I was very young. I remember seeing them and she would take them out to show me and she had them in a cabinet. You know, they were little uh, figurines of Dickens uh, characters. And for her, it was pure social uh, yeah. aspiration. You know, they had yeah. to own these things with no use value, pure decoration, yeah. pure kind of accumulation, you know. Yeah. And I think I did think oh well these are these are toys that are acceptable for adults to have yeah, yeah, so I probably yeah. did want them a little bit but yeah now I, I I don't I don't think I could beyond knowing that for her they were you know something of so much meaning that she you yeah. know really wanted to own it's quite sad really it is sad I mean I, I think of it as being a very Victorian thing that that notion of you know the China that you display but don't use I mean to me, it is like antimacassars on the back of the of the armchair. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe they'll have a comeback as well. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> Norma Clark, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks again. Well, thanks very much indeed. Bye for now. Take care. Bye. is all we have time for this week our thanks go to clifford thompson norma clark and Anne carson the latest issue of the tls is out now with all the pieces we've discussed on the show and much more besides thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by ben mitchell we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.